And there literally became two of me at that point. There was logical Rachel and there was trauma Rachel. And I held it together all day long enough so I could hand my kids off to my husband. And I was like, I'm gone. And I I was. I left for a a night. I didn't know how long it was going to be gone. And it's weird because, I mean, trauma Rachel was in control. And logical Rachel, it's like it's like trauma Rachel put her in a bag and slung her over her, her shoulder. And logical <laughs> Rachel's in the bag like, no, everything's fine. And trauma Rachel's like, this is not okay. Things are not okay. And I went, ironically, I wasn't thinking about it at the time, but I drove like four and a half hours to the last place. This is a Reboots Rough Cuts episode, edited, mixed, and mastered by Mikhail Kozenkov. I'm Tracy Wenchel, and this special series has been inspired by a, a conversation with Mikhail and a group of fellow podcasters during which I expressed frustration and concern about a backlog of beautiful stories that have been growing metaphorical dust on my hard drive because I just hadn't gotten around to editing them and publishing them yet. Mikhail offered to help me clear the backlog and to crank out as many episodes as possible by the close of 2018. And this is one of those dozen interviews that will most certainly bring hope to many listeners, maybe even you. Before we dig into the conversation, a little more about my partner on this series. Mikhail manages ChristianAudioDebates.com. It's a website devoted to turning into podcasts scholarly debates between Christian apologists and atheists, skeptics, Muslims, etc. Mikhail finds recordings, a lot of times on YouTube, of debates between Christian scholars and atheist scholars, or between Christian apologists and Muslim apologists. And then he extracts the audio from those debates, he polishes and cleans up the audio, and then turns the debates into podcasts. Pretty interesting stuff. Now, if you're a podcaster who is overwhelmed with post-production, or maybe you're not sure how to edit your own podcast, and you want a personal step-by-step walk through the editing and mixing process, or maybe you just want your podcast to sound the very best it can and not have to worry about the editing stage at all, you're going to want to get in touch with my friend Mikhail. Here's how you get in touch with him. It's podcastsoundfixer at gmail.com. We'll have a link in the show notes. Hey there, you're dialed into Reboots, featuring stories about people who have been forced to start over in life or in business, all walks of life, anonymous or named, high profile or low down, stories with heart, soul, and grit. Because knowing and sharing our stories is essential for living a life of joy, experiencing healthy relationships, and impacting the world around us in a positive way. Here's your host, Tracy Winchell. I have a friend. Her name is Rachel. She is an interior designer, a writer, wife, mother of three, and a staunch advocate for foster care and adoption. Rachel also knows what it's like to live with post-traumatic stress disorder and the lasting impacts of sexual abuse. Now, you're about to become friends with Rachel, too, because she is our guest on Reboot's episode, 
33. We're going to talk with Rachel about how on earth she has managed to write and publish three books, even with three young children. They're kind of awesome kids, by the way. (laughs) We're also going to talk to Rachel about why she chooses to tackle really tough and pretty often taboo topics like childhood sexual abuse in her Christian historical fiction novels. And Rachel explains what can happen when she doesn't feel emotionally safe inside her own home and how she and her sweet husband, Kent, are helping each other and their children set healthy emotional boundaries. Plus, Rachel offers up some sage advice about fostering and adopting children. Let's get to it. Hey, Rachel, thanks for inviting us into your life today. Thank you. Hey, tell me a little bit about what your life is like. Well, I'm a writer. I have three kids that I've adopted from foster care. And um, oh, now that they're back in school, I get to write more. I also run or I operate a foster closet. It's a closed closet for foster kids. And that is a joy for me to be able to do and to be able to kind of pay it forward and um, to help other families who are in the midst of fostering and just be able to kind of assist them. I also have a wonderful husband, Kent. And I'll probably talk about him more. And um, I have a book that's about to come out. And This is your so. third book, right? Yeah. Wow. Um, the last book in the River series, it's called Rivertown Crooner. And it follows Bordertown Gypsy and Lynchtown Wolf. And it's been just really amazing to get to write it. I feel really honored by God that He gave me the story. And He's helped me along the way to be able to write it, to give me the words to say and, and the story. How on earth do you make time to write with three kids, a dog, a cat, and a husband? How do you how do you do that? Oh, and, well, and all the volunteer work. So we you kicked do. the cat outside, and that helped. <laughs> we live out in the country, so um, not having him in the house, you know, that's. So my kids went back to school. I was planning to write this summer. And I was going to publish in September, but it's already October 5th, and it's not published yet because I decided after about a month of my kids being home, I was super stressed. I had the schedule, which I'm not very good with schedules, actually, and I was like, you guys are going to do this, and I'm going to write. And we tried that for a month, and I basically got nothing written, and so I stopped. And I had all this really good advice from people saying, you know, enjoy your kids while they're home. And if it's too stressful, do it later. And so I listened to him. And I think that was really wise advice that they had given me. So the day my kids went back to school, I went back to writing. And yeah, I was a couple months behind where I wanted to be. But we had a lot of good memories this summer. So now that my kids are back in school, I write every day. I mean, pretty much from like eight to four till they get off the bus. And so that's been a really big blessing to be able to do that. My husband works from home a lot, and we get to see each other a lot during the day, which is nice. And then I don't have to feel guilty in the evenings when my kids are home and my husband's off work, and I'm I'm not having to write during that time, which is kind of how I did it before my daughter started kindergarten last. She just started this year. And so... It was harder when, you know, she was home, I'd feel guilty. Like, oh, I'm not spending enough time with her. So I'd try to write in the evenings after people would go to bed, but then I'd feel tired and 
you know, I feel very blessed that I'm able to do that now. Tell me how you get started, because that, for me, when I'm working on a writing project, often the toughest thing to do is just to sit down and get started. So at the end of the day, do you leave yourself breadcrumbs for the next morning? Or how do you just say, here's where I'm going to start? How do you do that? So if I've already started the project and I'm, you know, I'm in the middle of it, there are a lot of times even during the day where I'll write for a while and then I'm like, you know what? I really feel like at this point, I don't know what I'm going to say next. And I'll, I'll get up and I'll go for a walk or whatever. Sometimes just walking across the house and back. And it's like God puts these things in my head and he works the story out for me. And I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's like what I need to do next. And so I have learned over time to basically listen to when, if I'm listening, I really believe that God gives me the story. So if I'm listening from God, it's flowing out of me. But there are other times when I'm like trying to make it work. And it's like, you know, trying to fill a glass by squeezing a lemon or trying to fill it by just pouring the lemonade into the glass from the pitcher. <laughs> and and it's really much harder to try to, you know, get it out of the lemon. And so I have to identify those times when it's like, okay, put it away and come back later. And really, God's been really faithful to, to give me what I needed at exactly the time I needed it. So mm. I've learned not to worry about it as much, not to worry about what I'm going to write and just basically listen for what he's telling me. One more question about about process before we dive into what the book is about and where you got the idea. What kind of things have you learned about writing between book number one and this book that you're just finishing up? Hmm. Well, one thing is I have learned to pray before I write. <laughs> Because, I, I mean, I kind of did that, but now it's like every morning, it's not just like a quick prayer in my heart. It's like I actually <laughs> am sitting there at my desk like, okay, God, I, I really appreciate this gift you've given me, and I, I really enjoy it, and I now want to tell your story, and I'll just get out of your way, and you just do it for me. So that's actually been a huge thing, and I've really only started doing that since, like, August, and that's made a huge difference because I still had a lot of the book to finish. I would say other things are just not worrying about it, just trusting that the story's going to come when it's supposed to come instead of trying to make it happen. There's a lot that I've learned about writing. I started writing in 2008, and there's a lot of things I've learned since then. Like The biggest factor, I think, in just writing is just do it. Like, just practice. It's like if you're going to play ball, you have to practice it. You're not going to be any good if you don't. And so there's a whole lot of stuff I've written that really wasn't any good, but it was good practice, and I've gotten a lot better over time. And so I think that, and that even goes, I mean, that goes back to 2008, and I just started writing the River series in, like, March of 2016, so eight years after I really started writing. And I've learned a lot, too, I guess, with this story. So I have to say... This story, I dreamed I dreamed a part of it, and I woke up, and I was like, I know that this is something that God was giving me. It's not just a, a normal dream, and I started that very morning to write it, and even like on the way to school, telling my kids the G-rated version of what this story was going to be, but and then I published it. I had almost finished writing the whole series last September of 2017, 
And I was like, okay, I'm ready. I think I can really finish this. I didn't want to start something I couldn't finish. I didn't think that'd be fair to the reader to put something out there that I never finished. And so once I reached that point, I said, okay, I'm going to publish Bordertown Gypsy in September. I'm going to publish Lynchtown Wolf in March. And then the following September, I'm going to publish Rivertown Crooner. But the thing is, I didn't have Rivertown Crooner all the way finished. And that wasn't the main issue. Really, there's a kind of a parallel in my own life about some healing that I needed to do personally that also my character needed to do. And neither of us had reached the point where we knew what that healing was or what it looked like. But by saying and putting it out there, I'm going to publish this in September of 2018, I was basically saying, okay, God, I believe that you can do this healing in my own life so that I can write it for my character so that she can have this and I can publish this book, if that makes sense. So, and the amazing thing is like, God's done that for me in my own life. He's brought that about. And I could see that progressing as I was writing the story. And and editing and, and fine-tuning the, the books, I could really see that happening. And so, like, my own healing has come about, has kind of instigated healing in my character, but her healing has also fueled my own, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So that's been a really beautiful thing, and I feel just—I'm, like, totally amazed that God did that. He gave me that story before I even knew I needed it. Let's— Talk specifically about that. I don't want to do a spoiler alert, okay. but I think it's important to to talk about what we're talking about here. Okay. The, the subject matter of your books. Tell me about the dream that you had, the character who needs the healing, and how part of that is you. Okay. So I gave you a whole fistful of questions here. <laughs> Let's just start with the idea for the book. Okay. The what the dream. topic is about. Okay. Yeah. The topic. All right. So the River series, it's basically a historical Christian fiction novel. And there's this really lovely family, the Cordero family, and they live in Fort Smith, Arkansas in the year 1917. And which they're fictional, they're made up. There are a lot of non-fictional people and characters and events that take place throughout the, the River series that are parts of real history and it's been fun to weave like fictional things into that and this isn't really a spoiler the family ends up there's a tragedy in the first chapter and they leave behind two orphans and and one of them she's really the protagonist her name's Daniela you follow her throughout the whole river series and it's basically um, like her story of life it goes from tragedy to trauma to rescuing and redemption and then Basically, she finds her healing, and this is how she navigates all of it. And yeah, and it's Christian, so there's God is in it, and He's working through her, and He's working through other people. And time and again, things get messed up in her life, and she messes things up, and other people do too. And bad bad things happen, but God always pulls the good out of that and uses it for something later, which I think is a really beautiful thing, and I can see that in my own life. So, and then the series ends up, it wraps up. Um, really about 1932, and then there's kind of an epilogue at the end. Well, I've got to get reading because I've only read the first one. And you're right, there's a lot of heartache in there. The subject matter is about kids who are orphaned, and then there's the topic of sexual abuse in there. 
That's a hard topic, Rachel, and it's a hard topic anyway, and it's an especially hard topic with Christian fiction. How do you write your way through that? That's got to be difficult. Yeah, so I did use a lot of euphemisms, and I also... I, I didn't want to get graphic. I mean, right. I don't want to watch a show or read a book that's graphic. Right. Um, and smart people are reading this, so it's you can insinuate that things happen without actually describing it, for one thing. Another thing is, I feel it's a really important topic to discuss and to acknowledge that that happens. And that's not, I mean, the whole book's not just about that one topic. There's a lot of pieces, but but that is a more difficult topic to talk about but I think that it's presented in a way that people can relate to it, but also not feel offended or violated from right. it, if that makes sense. Yep, I agree. Mm-hmm. So where does your story match up with the protagonist's story? So we've both had like years of abuse regarding things of a sexual nature as well. And I think kind of the feeling of of abandonment is there, too. I mean, for sure, she was like, she's literally been abandoned through death by her family. And um, in my own sense, I had a lot of, I isolated for a long time and was kept from having connections with other people. And so there was that feeling of abandonment. But totally, I mean, the whole God coming in and rescuing this person and bringing healing not only to her life and to my life, but also people who are the closest to us. I mean, there are a lot of, there are a whole lot of parallels um, between her story and my own. I, I can relate too, because she's an orphan and I have three kids who I adopted from foster care. And I mean, talk about trauma, like any kid who's ever been in foster care, who's been adopted, they've had trauma. And trauma can take all kinds of different forms. And it can be as simple as, you know, as basic as you were just separated from your birth family to something that's abuse or neglect or drugs or alcohol or just having seen scary things in your lifetime. And so I can see the parallels in my life and hers in a lot of different ways. And it's been amazing too how well in my own life, dealing with some issues that that I have, how that's helped me to see and deal better with my own children and to handle their trauma better too, to understand it better. So so last summer, June of 2017, basically my brain broke like I had all this trauma for years that I'd stored up and not and I thought, yeah, I'm handling it. I'm, I'm handling it. I'm but I was holding it in and eventually it it broke. And um there became there literally became two of me at that point. Um there was logical Rachel and there was trauma Rachel. And trauma Rachel is nutso and she's really <laughs> she doesn't handle things well. And and so my my character in my book, you know, I acknowledge I have post-traumatic stress disorder and my character does as well. And as you're reading the book, you'll see like, yeah, she's having like a PTSD episode. You know, that's what's happening for her. It's that fight, flight, freeze where basically your trauma person inside you who you want to stay asleep and who normally is asleep 
all of a sudden senses that there's danger and they start to wake up and they start to take over and they their choices don't usually help the situation. Um, sometimes it does. I mean, that's why God put inside us that fight, flight, freeze mechanism. But there are times when this happens and it kicks in when there's not really danger there. And so that can really mess things up in your own life. For me, last March, that happened. I was, I hate to say triggered because that's a total hipster word. but No, I think it's a real thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know a better word to use. So, But that happened and I was like, I have to get out of here. And I I held it together all day long enough so I could hand my kids off to my husband. And I was like, I'm gone. And I, I was. I left for a, a night. I didn't know how long it was going to be gone. And it's weird because, I mean, trauma Rachel was in control. And logical Rachel, it's like it's like trauma Rachel put her in a bag and slung her over her, her shoulder. And <laughs> logical Rachel's in the bag like, no, everything's fine. And trauma Rachel's like, this is not okay. Things are not okay. And I went, ironically, I wasn't thinking about it at the time, but I drove like four and a half hours to the last place where I really felt like in my life I'd been safe and before like the trauma had happened. And so... I mean, just a totally bizarre thing happened that night. I met a total stranger, and God showed me. Basically, I was running to God, but I needed to get out of my house to do that because I wasn't feeling safe. So I was running to God, and I ended up at this person's house that I didn't even know. They had a room I was going to rent. And I discovered that this person had PTSD of their own, but their way of dealing with it was to do drugs. Like there were drugs all up in that house. And I was like, I don't want to be here. And, and I just, it really was like, God put it right there in my face. Like when you're having these problems, you need to deal with them and run to me. Don't run to those pain numbers, which I never have. I mean, I've never done drugs or alcohol, but it was really a wake up call for me. So I slept in my car that night. I ended up not staying at the lady's house. And I felt much safer in my car than I would have felt with her. And I woke up the next morning, and I still had this problem, though, that I I needed to fix. I knew in my head, like, how I should think about it, but I couldn't make myself think about it that way. And so, you know, I said, God, you're going to have to help me with this because, I mean, I really want to think about this the right way. And I wrote, actually wrote a blog that kind of described this a little bit better, but it was like there were there was there's a disconnect in the brain when you have PTSD. And so there's these two people and they have a really hard time communicating with each other in your head. And so I it was a struggle to get them to communicate, but I was able to overcome it with God's help. And it was like click. It just clicked. And I was like, okay, I, I'm thinking about this the right way now. And I was back in my right mind. <laughs> and um, I got in my car and I drove four and a half hours home. And, you know, my husband's been really, really good to um, to handle all this. He, in the beginning, neither of us knew what right. was going on. Um, but he's been very instrumental in that. So how, how do you two work through the communication process so that, first of all, you feel safe in your own home and second of all, you can kind of hold up your hand when you when you think, oh, my gosh, something's getting ready to happen. How, how does he 
help you deal with it. Talk to me about all of that. Okay. So for one thing, we're way more open and honest and with each other than we ever were before this happened, um, which has been really good for both of us. We've kind of both been on a journey like these past 16 months. And and he can see it on me. Like he can see in my face now, like, okay, something she's not right. And I and he kind of will give me space, but also reassurance. And I've found like it's really been important to have those accountability partners to to reach out to, especially women who have like experienced the same kind of thing. And I'll have there have been a few moments where it's like, oh my goodness, like I feel this trauma of Rachel waking up inside me and I don't want that to happen. And I've reached out to people and it, I've sent out like texts just to <laughs> friends or I'll call them and be like, okay, I need you to pray that this doesn't happen, first of all. And I don't need to deal right now with the issue that caused it. Like that can be dealt with after I put her back to sleep, but I need her to go back to sleep. I don't want to lose my mind right now because <laughs> it's like my kids are going to come home from school in 20 minutes. I can't lose my mind or I need to go you know, take care of my family right now. I can't be out of my right mind. So, and those people have been so supportive and I have felt their prayers in those moments when it's like, I'm about to lose my mind. And then 20 minutes later, after reaching out to people, I'm fine again. And so, and my husband, he's been, he personally has been a really good leader for me, an example this past, these past 16 months about just going to God um, instead of trying to figure it out on my own. And he's been kind of leading me to God, not just telling me go to God, but kind of helping me make my way there. And So how? Tell me how. Well, so there were months there where I was like, I, I can't pray. I can't even talk about this like without it affecting me like anything. I couldn't even like acknowledge that there was stuff wrong, even though I knew there was stuff wrong. And so my husband prayed with me every morning. And there were times when I didn't say anything, like I couldn't say anything. But he was praying there with me and he was praying for my healing. And I know, I know that that he's been praying for me many times a day. And um, and he tells me that. And so telling me that, and I can, I've been able to see the change in my life and the change in his life has has been amazing too, to be able to see that how he goes to God. I want to talk a little bit about safety um, because Kent, I I know Kent, and he is just a super good dude. And so I want to back up just a little bit. When you said you didn't feel safe in your home, two things. First, I know it's really important for you to provide a safe home for your children and your husband. Mm-hmm. But I think it's interesting. There's a difference between knowing you're safe and feeling safe. It's kind of like these two people that you're carrying around. Yes. Tell me that the difference between being safe and then feeling safe, and how you how you reconcile those. Well, so yeah, I do want to provide a home that feels safe to my kids, and I think that's been really important for their own recovery to know that they're safe and cared for. And I, yeah, I want to have that for my husband too. And I know that like my PTSD has shaken my husband a little in that he's felt not as safe in our home as he did before. But I have grown to feel so much safer now that we've opened up and talked about this stuff. So 
our home in a very literal sense is a safe place, you know. There's no abuse that takes place. You know what I'm saying? We yeah. we don't have any guns. Right. <laughs> we don't let our kids play with knives or fire. <laughs> it's a very safe place. Um, there's a lot of love there, but there are times for me, and and I see it. I can see it on my kids' faces too. When, um, for instance, in my oldest son, if he gets in trouble for something, and it or or even if he if he takes a math test and he gets a 95. That's not safe enough for him because he wants to be perfect, and he's afraid that if he's not, he'll never be good enough. I mean, he goes from I'm perfect to life is hopeless if something like that happens, and he has a total breakdown. It's like, hey, buddy, like we still love you. Like it's okay. We I don't care what you get on your math test. You could have a zero, and I would still love you. And but for him, he. He hasn't maybe accepted that. It hasn't become his natural path yet. There's this pathway that is made with like abuse and trauma. And that's his past before he was adopted. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that path gets really worn. It's like a path you walk down and you can see where it is, but you don't want that path anymore. You have to make a new path. And so it takes a lot of repetitions of that walking that new pathway And sometimes you find you're on the old pathway and that's when, you know, or you may even just see the old pathway and you're reminded of it and you're like, oh, that that can trigger something inside you to where everyone on the outside can see that there's actual safety there. But for you, it's this it's this wiring in your brain that hasn't been you haven't totally rewired your brain yet, basically. And so you have to continue on the repetitions of creating the new the new way, and there's a lot of inner work that. So has what to be done. you're saying is that feeling safe and creating a, a family where everyone feels safe requires a lot of work and a lot of repetition and a ton of communication about saying I'm not feeling safe right now. Yeah, in some way, and recognizing that even if someone's not saying it. Do, do you have house rules or or sort of kind of guidelines um, between you and Kent? To make sure you you both feel safe, or to help the kids feel safe, are there house rules? Yes. Um, so Kent and I, we do have like our own boundaries, basically that I've established, like in the last sixteen months with our kids. Yeah, I mean, we do. One thing that I always tell my kids is, like, I will love you no matter what. Like, I don't care what you do, I will still love you, and. That's kind of been a theme throughout my book, my book series too, is, you know, families stick together. (laughs) Even when you do really terrible things, we still love you. And I think having that reassurance, I mean, for me and for my kids, for my husband, that's been really important. That's, that's kind of one of the biggest things I think. And yeah, I mean, there are, there are lots of ways that we work towards recovery, um, if that makes sense, like we go to celebrate recovery, four of us are in counseling, and um, I actually see two counselors, and and that's been amazing. Like to be able to experience that, we have Christian counselors, and just to know and to get the knowledge that comes from that has been really, really helpful. So, can you give me like your top two or three boundaries that you? exercise every day like 
maybe bedtimes or say when I've had enough, give me some space, anything like that? Right. Okay. So with it's easier for me to pick out like for my oldest son, really for all of our kids, specifically for him. Yeah, there's a lot of things that we that we do. It, it's kind of like you figure out how to do it and you just do it naturally. You don't really have to think about it. But he, he does definitely have times where he needs to be alone. And it's like, that's okay. If you can't respond right now and you can't talk to us right now, that's okay. So you can go be alone. And, and really, my, my other son does that too. They'll just go hide in the closet behind their clothes or they'll just go lay on their bed under their blanket. It's kind of like they need to... I guess, have some time in their head alone. And I have to do that too at times. You know, you just have to be alone and figure things out, you know. And and for me, it's like asking God, hey, it's like meditation, I guess. I'll, I'll get, get down on the floor in my office and I'll put a blanket over myself. And I'm like, <laughs> I know I look totally weird right now, but, but I'm like talking to God. And so I know that my kids need that too. And right. that's been really helpful to have. Um, Your oldest is learning the word boundaries because I get to interact with him pretty frequently. And um, he gives me homework assignments because he's teaching me Pokemon. Uh, yeah. And I missed a couple of assignments. Yeah. <laughs> and he told me, Miss Tracy, I want to keep teaching you, but I'm going to have to set some boundaries. So if you don't do your homework next week, I can't teach you anymore. Oh, my goodness. And I've been spot on okay. ever since. And so I love that. That that tells me that you guys talk about boundaries and that sometimes yeah. boundaries move a little bit. And just a whole conversation about boundaries is a big deal. Do you have a, a, a place where you go to kind of figure out how to do boundaries? I mean, the, the classic is uh, Cloud and Townsend's Boundaries book. Has that been a help to you? I would say a lot of information has, number one, come from counseling. His counselor um, and both of my kids, they have really good counselors, but I've learned a lot specifically from my oldest son's counselor. She used to counsel both the boys, and so I have a longer relationship with her. And she's taught me a lot about boundaries and about parenting and also going to counseling on my own. So I never thought much about boundaries for myself, really, until I went, it was last October. So I guess it's been about a year I went to a retreat that was specifically for women who had kind of dealt with the kind of trauma that I had. And it was totally amazing to be with those ladies and to just share. We were there for five days and just to share. Wow. And But it was there, really. I, I was talking, and, I, and they were all listening, and I was telling them something that was going on. And... um they like all had this look on their face. I was like, what is that? Like something is not right. And they basically told me about like personal boundaries and, and what kind of boundaries you could set for yourself. And it was kind of like a shock for me. I was <laughs> like, I didn't even know that. So that's helped a lot, not only for myself, but to be able to see how I can respect my kids' boundaries and how I can help them develop boundaries of their own. Mm. And and to help other people see that as well, that this is what they need. And it's been really great too. Um, 
our children's minister at church, she just rearranged my both of my son's classroom. And um, she put a little, like a timeout area, not for when you get in trouble, but just if you need time on your own, go there. And like every time I walk into class, almost every time my son's sitting over there <laughs> and it'll be, he, he, you know, the smallest things will throw him off. See, I'm with him. <laughs> I, I'm totally with him. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, let's talk about foster parenting. How did these beautiful, amazing kids come into your life in the first place? I got married when I was 19, and I'd always said kind of flippantly, like, oh, if it ever came to spending a lot of money on fertility treatments or adoption, you know, versus adoption, I would just adopt. And then it actually came to be where I had to do that. I was faced with that choice. And but fertility treatments had there. I had a lot of depression as we were going through infertility that lasted for five years. And um, it's kind of a, you know. A dark time in my life, not feeling like I had much hope. And really, my husband was kind of silently resistant to it. He he didn't really want kids, but he wanted me to be happy. But I think in the back of his mind, he was like, but I'd be happy if, if this didn't happen. And then when it went on so long, I think his perspective changed. And he was like, wait, I, I really want to make my wife happy. Yeah. So we were faced with with the option of basically God's going to have to work a miracle or you can adopt. And so we were like, yeah, okay, we're ready to adopt. Like it's been so many years, we're ready to do this. But doors were being shut everywhere and we didn't have any money. So we went down this path of, we we tried all kinds of things. So we created a Facebook page, just kind of put the word out there to all our friends. And we put flyers up at the university like, hey, we'll adopt your baby. <laughs> and um, nothing came from any of that. And it was really depressing. And I felt like I was wrestling with God, like I was Jacob in the desert, trying to make this thing happen. And it wasn't happening. And i that's like the story of my life. I keep trying to make stuff happen. And God's like, it's not time yet. And then when it is time, you know, he makes stuff happen. So then randomly, I mean, God was ready. And so it was kind of all these doors started opening. An uncle had a friend of a friend who ran this children's home, and they called us. And we're like, hey, we heard you want to adopt. And we're like, yeah, we do. And so they're like, well, let's do the paperwork. And it's, by the way, it's through foster care. So it doesn't cost anything, which was good. We didn't have like a ton of money to spend on it. And we got approved. And it had been a couple months. And I was having lunch with a friend. And she, um, I love her. And she's very just filled with the Holy Spirit. And she was saying, you know, well, you know, sometimes when God blesses you, he opens the floodgates. And right when she said that, my phone rang, and it was the caseworker calling to tell me that there were three kids who needed a mom and dad, two boys and a girl. The boys were three and four at the time, and the baby girl was three months old. And I mean, I knew right away, like, this is what God has been planning for us, which is weird because we only wanted a baby. And then it's like, what? There's three of them? <laughs> you have three kids? And wow. Um, yeah. And so, my, I mean, that was on a Friday. And the following Tuesday, they dropped our oldest son off at our house. And then two weeks later, we drove to the DHS office and got my next son. Six weeks after that, we got my baby daughter in the Chick-fil-A parking lot, which you never know where you're going to pick up kids <laughs> when you're getting them from foster care. So, um, but it was not, it was not all like rainbows and sunshine. It was hard. It was very 
hard. I that I got my daughter the day before I turned thirty, so it had been five years that we wanted kids, and um, specifically with my oldest son, you would be amazed like how much trauma could affect a four-year-old. He remembers a lot even now, didn't he? Yeah, just and I mean it's like built into his body. I mean. It, it's affected his body like neurologically. And so um, it was, re- we didn't know how to, <laughs> we had never been parents and we especially didn't know how to handle like a kid with trauma. And there were like, there were many days when Kent and I were exhausted and we'd just go to bed and we'd say, we can't do this anymore. We're going to have to call him to take him. Like we could keep the other two, but we can't keep him. He's got too much trauma. And, and so are you still in the fostering stage at this point? Yes. Okay. And so we... We had gone into it thinking, we want a kid. We want a baby. And this happened again and again. We were like, we're going to have to, we can't keep him. We can't handle him. And God would say, no, this isn't about you. This is about him and how I've equipped you to take care of him. And And you said, God, you're crazy. I'm (laughs) equipped for this. No, it was like such a slap (laughs) in the face. It's like, you're right. Like we're, we've been so selfish and this, and I knew, I mean, we knew that if we didn't keep him, he would go straight to a therapeutic home. His name and picture would go on the heart gallery list, and he would sit there till he was 18. And what is what is the heart gallery? So the heart gallery, every state has a heart gallery, and it's children who are available to adopt. You don't have to wait. You don't have to pay a penny. These kids need a home, and here's their picture and their name and a little bit of the, their story. Arkansas has a heart gallery. Project Zero does amazing things to get their names and stories and pictures out there, buys them clothes, puts makeup on the teenagers, makes them look gorgeous, takes their picture. But I knew like he's gonna he's gonna sit on the heart gallery. He's gonna age out at 18. He's gonna be hopeless if he lives that long. And so it was like we can't get rid of him. We have to keep him. And so there so we did and we adopted him. It's been almost five years. All three of them adopted them all at the same time. And um, man, at first it was like, okay, we're like out here drowning. Like Kent and I, we're just drowning. And a couple years later, it was like, hey, I think I think we've got an arm on the side of the boat. Like, this is great. <laughs> and then eventually it's like, okay, we're actually in the boat and we're driving. And like their trauma is not driving this boat anymore. Like we are in control. And I mean, it's all because of God, because he had planned this and because he's given us the strength to do this. I th- Yeah, I think anybody who's ever fostered or adopted would would know what it means like to have the trauma running the show and it's like the trauma is not running the show in our lives anymore like god is helping us overcome that what are some of the tools that that helped you navigate this i mean you you make the decision that this is a god thing that you have to do and that you want to do except when you're exhausted which is most of the time what tools did you use to say trauma, you need to get out of the way here. Do you wait it out? Do you do you love it? How how does that work? Um. Okay. On the most basic level, this is going to sound stupid, but use paper plates and don't. I mean, cut out anything that you can cut out. Really, if you don't need to do dishes, don't do dishes. <laughs> I mean, just get rid of the things in your life that are getting in the way. That's most basic. To, on, to add to that, like we had friends and family who 
donated things to us, which was amazing, like to not have to go buy this. And you wouldn't think that it'd be a big deal to go buy clothes for a kid. But when this kid's like in trauma mode and you can't even get out of the house, it's like a huge deal to have people bring you stuff or to help you with things. So that that's like another level. And to accept that, like to be able to accept that help. You know, I run the foster closet and I meet people who are kind of, I mean, they're better off, they're well off. And, um, they foster and I'm like, it's okay if you come and get stuff. It doesn't mean you're poor. It means you're raising kids who have trauma. And this is one less thing that you have to worry about because really what you need to be worrying about at that point is how you're taking care of your kids and how you're developing this relationship with them. So those are just really basic things. Definitely get kids into therapy, get yourself into therapy. If, if a therapist isn't working out, I've learned, try another one. Because we've I've gone through a few before I really found someone that's like, yeah, this person's actually helping. Wow. Rachel, that's really wise. So you try one therapist and it it's not working out for you. That doesn't mean therapy's bad. It means that's just not a that person's not a good fit for you, right? Right. Yeah. And talk with teachers if your kids are in school. That's a really big deal. Um, is to communicate with the teachers and let them know up front that this this kid has trauma, they're going to behave this way. And we want to do as much as we can to keep them not, you know, from being suspended or from getting bad reports or, hey, you know, this clip down system you do, you can't do that with him because he's going to, if he clips down one time, he is going to lose it. And the rest of his day is going to be bad. Like, What's a clip down? Oh, there's, there's this system where you start on green, you know, and for good behavior, you get clipped down to yellow. If, if you're having bad behavior, go down to red and it's like, you got to see the principal and some teachers will clip back up and you can go up to, you know, you go from green to like blue to purple and purple's like you did fantastic. And the good kids always end on purple, but the kids who don't handle things well, they go down to yellow and that just adds to it. It's like, no, now you've made them hopeless. And so yeah, there's just small things like that. Um, staying in communication with teachers. You can we we noticed we had a teacher recommend that we get our son on ADHD medications and I was like really resistant to it. And I think for good reason. I wanted to check out all of our angles first. And mm-hmm. so we did. We tried everything and eventually it was like, you know what, let's let's try this. That his therapist kind of convinced me that this is probably a good thing. And it has been a really good thing. And I never, like, I worked in a pharmacy for years, and I always thought the parents who had their kids on Adderall were, like, lazy parents. And now I'm like, actually, no, some kids really benefit from this. And it it's like he's only been on it for probably eight months. And it's really not just improved his behavior at school, but it's improved how he thinks about himself because he's not being told every day, stop, sit down, be quiet, you know. And so he has a better perspective of himself, which has been really good. So I think taking, I think listening to the advice of your of your therapist and other wise people, but also I think there are sometimes when advice is not helpful and you can filter through that. I will say that I've never raised biological kids, but I know that kids who come from trauma are not the same as biological kids. Like if a kid, like I said, if they're in foster care or adopted, they have trauma. They were separated from their birth family. That's like a huge thing. And there's probably more layers to their trauma. Um, And so you can't approach it from the perspective of this is a normal kid. I'm going to raise them in a normal way. 
you need to surround yourself with a community of people who understand and who can give you wisdom based on, you know, I've been there before. I've had a kid who behaved like this. I know what you're talking about. I sympathize with you. Here's some good advice. And, you know, we've been learning that over time, just just all the different ways. Oh, Rachel, that's a, that's a good way to sort of terrify people who are even thinking about fostering <laughs> or adopting. I mean, it just is. Sorry. <laughs> but isn't it better to know this and then to know that somebody like you and Kent, you've survived it, and now then, man, those kids are thriving. Oh, yeah. So yeah. how do you how do you how do you tell that story in a way that someone who's thinking about adopting can just say I'm going to embrace the terror for a while yeah. because it'll be worth it. What words are of advice would you have for them? Well, so one thing I can say is that it's not my job to convince anybody to foster or adopt. I do want to put the facts out there, but it's God's job. God's going to change their heart. And if their heart's going to be changed, he's going to do it. And there's really nothing they can say to, you know, to go against that. But the more I look at it, I see like how God has adopted us. Like he, he doesn't need us, but we have, we are so messed up in so many different ways, just humankind. And he loves us anyway. And he doesn't just love us and just put up with us, but he's like, I want to make your life better. I want to heal these hurts in your life. And like to see the parallel of that and raising kids who are in, who have had this trauma, who've been separated from their birth family. I'm like, wow, I don't, I don't honestly see anything else that is more like what God has done for us than raising kids who have been separated from their birth family, orphans, you know, or or kids in foster care are essentially orphans because they don't have their ch- their parents to raise them. I don't see anything else that is that is more similar to what God the Father does for us, just as His sons and daughters. And I see so much redemption, and and it's not just that, like. <laughs> Especially for Christians, I see this idea of like, we want to change the world. And, you know, you can pay a lot of money and go on a mission trip and you can make changes. But I'm like, dude, you can have a kid come in your home and it's like you're living a mission trip and you are making a change. You don't know how huge that change could be. There are so many people who have been adopted and their lives have been changed. And it's amazing when you look at people even in our church, I'm like, oh my goodness, I didn't know he was adopted or she was adopted. And and imagine like how different the world could be if more people did that. I think about like the Shakers in, you know, the mid-19th century, they were celibates, but they kept growing because they took orphans in and they treated them well. Wow. And I'm like, if we took all the orphans in to Christian homes, can you imagine like the next wow. generation and the generation after that? Like we could totally change the world, people, because you're not even just starting with a grown up who's already been messed up. You're starting with the child. You're correcting like negative behavior before it even becomes a pattern in their life. Mm-hmm. And so I see it as like a world changing thing and, and a, a life changing thing. So. I don't know. To me, it is hard, but anything you do is going to be hard, you know, if you want to get better at it. And um, this is a life, a life changing thing. You can change the world, people. One human at a time, right? Yeah, or three. 
Yeah, or three all at once. <laughs> We've talked a lot about change, and your book talks about change despite all sorts of trauma, uh, your series of, of, of books. That's kind of what Reboots is about, is about incremental changes that help people get better or overcome stuff that has happened to them through no fault of their own or even just mistakes. So as you've developed your character and and kind of run the story arc, can you kind of, without doing a spoiler alert, is there a series of things that your character or you have done to help implement one incremental change after another to then come to realize, oh, this is a different human being. This is a different woman. This is a different character. Mm-hmm. How does one take one tiny step and then wake up a few years later and realize you've made a bunch of steps toward change? Well, so, okay, that kind of makes me think actually more of my husband and a character that I modeled after him in a way. And that character in the third book, there's like a huge change that occurs. And so both for this character and for my husband, some of the things that they've done incrementally are journaling in a way that you're you're speaking to God and you're doing that every day going to God running not just running away from from sin but going to God for strength like your strength does not come from yourself it comes from him and talking with him like talking out loud not just praying in your heart but but talking like you're having a conversation my husband <laughs> I'm sure our neighbors think he's insane um, because (laughs) he has many nights when he'll wake. We live out in the country, but we live on a road. There are actually like 10 houses on the road. And he'll get up in the middle of the night and he'll go walk down the road. And he's talking out loud, but he's talking to God. So if anybody's awake in the middle of the night, they think my husband's crazy. But but he's talking (laughs) to God. And I mean, and that I think that's a huge thing. Like it's been huge for me too. Um. And then I think some very, you know, realistic things you can do is to find your support group, um, find people who have good advice for you, who genuinely care, who aren't, who, you know, aren't going to gossip about you, keep it confidential and um, stay connected with those people. That's been huge, I, especially for my husband. That's been a huge thing. And then looking introspectively at yourself, like um, my husband's now, he's in his, I guess we're both in our second 12-step study um, with Celebrate Recovery. And those have a funny way of like showing you where, what your bad patterns are or even your good patterns and where they came from and just showing you like the origin of things that you didn't realize. and. That's been that's been really amazing to see that because sometimes you're like I don't know why I keep doing this you know I want to know why and it it goes further back usually than you even imagine but um but that's been very helpful to do a step study. Do you think uh, celebrate recovery gives you and Kent the fact that you're doing it together? Um, does it give you a vocabulary to better communicate on your struggles and your victories? Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. Let's come back to journaling a little bit. 
do you have a journaling habit or do you just write a billion words a day and that's sort of your journal? Well, yeah, I do. Sometimes I'll journal and I've done this throughout like our whole marriage, basically. I think that's probably when I started journaling was pretty early on in the beginning. And it's really more like when I'm passionate about something, I'll write it down. That's kind of how I do my blogs too. It's like until the moment strikes me. But yeah, I write every day. Like like I said, this the River series that I've been writing has been like so healing for me that it, it feels like it's I'm not sharing actually the actual events of my life, but I am helping characters heal in a way that I need to as well. And so um it's giving me almost a roadmap, if that makes sense, for mm-hmm. myself, even though I'm writing it for somebody else. But I do still, I do have a journal that I'll, I'll sometimes write. And I, so it's not really a literal journal. It's on my computer. I have a document that yeah, I keep, sure. so, because that's faster. Sure. Three more questions, I think. You are the first mom I've had on to talk about Celebration Place. Your kids are in Celebration mm-hmm. Place. and mm-hmm. Celebration Place is, is uh, Celebrate Recovery for Kids. It's pre-recovery. Tell me what it's like to, for for you and Kent to work your twelve steps, and then on Monday nights for your kids to be working their way through the twelve steps. How do, what's that looking like for them? Well, first of all, they love it. They love coming, which I'm like, okay, if they love coming, something good is happening in there. And I'm so grateful for the different people who have taught them celebration place because I know. You know, I mean, they're sacrificing their time, but for my kids, that's that is a place that they feel safe and that they feel like they're getting attention and positive attention. And then they do a little journaling thing in there. It's just one sheet of paper, and they circle if they're sad or they're happy or they're glad. Or there's different emotions, and then they tell about it. And their teachers will either write it for them or they'll write it themselves, like what happened today or what's happening this week. And I think it's nice for the kids to be able to put words to their emotions. That's been a huge thing for my kids because they pretty much came to us with like two emotions, happy or freaking out. And so for them to have other, to be able to identify their emotions and to talk about it, that's, that was not something that I grew up with. And I don't think, I mean, it wasn't for my husband either. And I think for a lot of people, like, we didn't talk about a lot of emotions. We might have, we felt them, you know, but to verbalize it and to communicate that with other people, that's a really important skill, but that's very, that just shows you so much about yourself and helps you connect with other people in a way that that's very healing and that promotes a healthy soul. And so I've been, I'm really, really, really grateful that there is Celebration Place. And I, I know that my kids love it and that it's, it's benefiting them. There's someone who's listening right now, and they want to do one of two things. They either want to learn more about what you've been through fostering or finding a safe place. Do you have any advice or encouragement for people... Let's just start with the fostering, uh, who who are interested in fostering. Where where would they go to find some help 
or to help them start making some connections with other people so that they can make a good decision one way or the other. Okay. So specifically about fostering and and not adoption really, but just fostering, it's different in every state. I'll say that. I know how Arkansas works and it's not the same way in other states, but if you're in Arkansas, let me just say this. If you're in Arkansas, you can either foster directly through DHS. I do not recommend that. DHS is overworked. and um, But you can go, there is hope, you can go through a third-party agency. And there are many of those in the state of Arkansas. And actually in Oklahoma, that is the only way that you foster now is you go through a third-party agency. And this is still through the state, but it's like you have a filter between you and the state, and that filter is so important. Like you have another support system there, and they can guide you and help you and basically make you stronger in what you're doing and offer you more support than than you'd ever get going through the state. I would tell people not to worry about the finances. Um, yes, it costs money to have a foster child. Yes, they come with a stipend, but you will figure it out. God will work it out for you, especially if you have a church community. Rely on them. Kind of put it out there that, hey, this is not just my foster kid, but like this, we're all going to help take Mm -hmm. care of this kid. And accept the help that's offered to you. Um, That's a big deal. That's kind of what I would say for fostering. For adoption, that is like a whole different ballgame. And there are so many ways to go with adoption. And you can spend zero dollars um, up to thousands and thousands of dollars. And so I would say, um, I would really say to start where your budget is because you don't want to get in over your head. And um, if you have a lot of money and then you need to look, am I going to adopt locally or you know domestically or internationally? And so you need to go those routes. If you don't have as much money, you want to stick to domestic, which is in the United States. And you could do a private adoption, and you could do that directly through an attorney, which is probably the least expensive way. Or you could go through an agency like Bethany Christian Services or any. There's so many agencies. And specifically, if you are of a religious affiliation, I would look for an agency that does adoptions for people in that group because they're going to they're, they're your people, and they're going to help you out. So um, if you don't have any money or you maybe— have a heart for foster kids. I I highly recommend looking into foster care. I am not as encouraging to people go through agencies because I know that the agencies are making a killing off of you, basically. Um, They're in it for the money. And I'm like, okay, there's kids out here who need families. These kids in foster care, oh my goodness, they're... they're in so great of a need. They're not, they're not a baby that's healthy that 500 families are fighting over. They're on the heart gallery and nobody is fighting over them. Nobody wants them and they age out every day. Those are the kids that my heart is drawn towards that, you know, I'm like, please, if you're looking to adopt, please consider adopting a kid from, you know, from foster care, from from your state DHS. And, and that's actually totally free. And that is a very, very noble cause. <laughs> My husband and I plan after, you know, my kids get older, after we've raised teenagers, to go back and to get teenagers. And those kids who, they don't have anybody. I mean, can you imagine today if you didn't have a family? 
You didn't have anybody to go home to for Christmas. You didn't have a mom to call, you know, and say, hey, how do I do this? That's that's what those kids are facing, and they need they need that. Kids belong in families. People belong in families. So I highly recommend looking at um, your state's heart gallery. If you're in Arkansas, look up Project Zero. It is ran by Christy Irwin, who's the author of The Middle Mom, which is a book, and she is amazing. She's totally amazing. I don't know her personally, um, but I see her work, and I know her heart is for these kids, especially the older ones. And some of these kids, you know, she'll put things on Facebook, and these kids don't have—they get a phone call once a week if they're, like, in an orphanage and um, or in a group home, and they'll call her. She's their person to call, and she would adopt them all if she could, um, but she can't. That's what the rest of us are for, and so I, I just would encourage people to look at the heart gallery and to open their heart up to somebody who needs people. Next question is, where does somebody find you so that when your book releases, they can buy it? Okay, so I am on Facebook, R.M. Snyder, and... I will give you the link to that. Um, so my books are for sale globally on Amazon.com. Bordertown Gypsy, Rivertown Crooner, and Lynchtown Wolf, and I got them out of order. But locally in Fort Smith, um, you can buy them at Brick City Emporium and the History Museum downtown, and then also in Van Buren at Chapters on Main. I also have a blog, and I'll put the link. I'll give uh, Tracy the link to that. And... I also have an email address, and I don't mind if anybody emails me, asks me anything. So. Yeah, we'll just put that in the show notes. Yeah. Um, last question then. What good in your life exists today that would not have existed but for the darkness in your life? Everything. I I think the biggest thing that has come about is just that I— I was always a Christian, but now I love God, if that makes sense, because I see how good he is. So what's the difference? What's the difference in being a Christian, loving God? Yeah. Well, as a Christian, I did everything I was ever supposed to do. I obeyed all the rules that I was ever taught, and I went to church, and I did everything right. As a person who loves God, I see God in everything I do. I want to share that with people. I want to help people heal and heal their hearts. And I I guess, in a way, loving God has helped me love other people, if that makes sense. Yeah, me too. Like, yeah, incredibly, because I never really, I never really understood love, loving other people until I fell in love with God. So I don't just want to be good because it'll keep me out of hell. You know, I want to be good because I love good. I love that God has created this, and I want other people to know. I want other people to have hope. I want them to to know about His goodness and and that there there is hope out there. And is that okay enough of an answer? <laughs> it's your answer. Yeah. Anything else? Hmm. I also one thing I would like to say is I would like to encourage anybody who feels like they have a mental illness to not only seek the help of a counselor, but to take the recommendations of their counselor and to not be afraid of what other people will think of you. I remember I was probably like 20 or 21, and I had some really serious depression, but I didn't seek help for this until like 
little over a year ago to about 16 months ago. And I begged my husband to take me to like a mental hospital. But in the back of my mind, I was, I was terrified of what people would think. And he was too. So he didn't take me, but I, so many years ago, like I could have benefited from that had I not worried about what other people would think. And so I want to encourage anybody who feels like they struggle with that to not be worried, to, to focus on what can be, how can you be your best version and don't worry about what other people think of you because they'll like you better if you're your best version anyway, no matter the path you have to take to get there. That makes sense. What is it our friend uh, Chris Benjamin says? It's none of my business what other people think of me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. I bet you're glad that I introduced you to my friend Rachel, right? You're welcome. Be sure you check out Rachel's Rivertown series. We're going to have links in the show notes to all three of her books, including her latest. If you're looking for more information about living with PTSD, check out Rachel's blog post about her recent PTSD episode. And if you're interested in learning more about the process of adoption, Rachel writes quite a bit about her family's experience and what it's like to help others navigate the red tape. We're going to have links to her blog and uh, her favorite episode on this topic in the show notes. Here's how you get to the show notes, by the way, rebootspodcast.com forward slash episode three, three. And finally, if you don't want to miss another episode of the Reboots podcast, and if perhaps you're interested in navigating change in your own life, uh, check out rebootspodcast.com forward slash change. I'll send you a couple of my favorite daily habits that have helped me adjust to change and that have helped me actually choose some change in my life. I'm Tracy Winchell. We'll see you next time. Dale Valente. Reboots, Rough Cuts are edited, mixed, and mastered by my friend Mikhail Kozenkoff. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode, it's because Mikhail offered to help me clear the interview backlog from the Reboots Vault. Mikhail manages ChristianAudioDebates.com. Now, that's a website devoted to turning into podcasts, scholarly debates between Christian apologists and atheists, skeptics, Muslims, etc. Now, if you're a podcaster who's overwhelmed with post-production or Maybe you just want your podcast to sound the very best it can and not have to worry about editing at all. In any of those three instances, Mikhail is your guy. Podcastsoundfixer at gmail.com is how you can get in touch with him. Thank you, Mikhail, for your generosity, for your expertise, and for just being such an incredible encourager. I'm Tracy Winchell, Dale Valente. We hope this episode has helped you in some way. If so, we'd love to hear from you. Maybe someone you care about might benefit from the Reboots Podcast. It's easy to share from our website, rebootspodcast.com. The Reboots Podcast is a production of Winchell Storyworks Incorporated, a company dedicated to helping businesses and individuals know, share, and live their stories in order to impact the world around us in a positive way and to achieve financial freedom. 